Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Nina Serrano, Julieta Kusnir, and Brenda Iescas. In tonight's program, we take a look at community resistance and survival through literature, poetry, and music. Nina Serrano speaks with author Diane Block about her book, Clandestine Operations, based on her work around prison reform. We'll also speak with Cuban poet Pablo Armando Fernandez about his life as a poet and his return to revolutionary Cuba in 1959. Last but not least, we spend some time talking with members of the local Son Jarocho group Haracol, whose members came together through their community organizing and activism in the Bay Area. They share with us their music and the great work they've been doing from arts to youth work in the Bay Area. Todo esto y mucho más, so stay tuned. Diana Block joined a small clandestine group of white people who were committed to supporting Puerto Rican independence movements. Four years later, shortly after the birth of her son, the group discovered a tracking device under their car. Realizing that they were being watched by the FBI, the group split up and spent nearly a decade living under new identities. In the following interview, La Raza Chronicles' Nina Serrano speaks with Diana Block about her newest book, Clandestine Operations, an Imaginary History, based on her work around reforming the U.S. criminal justice system. My guest today is writer Diana Block. She's just written a new book called Clandestine Occupations, an Imaginary History. An Imaginary History? Does she mean a novel? Yes, she means a novel. Clandestine Occupations. I had the opportunity to write a little blurb about the book, and this is my considered opinion about the book. Diana Block writes in Clandestine Occupations in a compelling, authentic voice as she follows six characters beginning in 1986 and projects into the immediate future up to 2020 through four decades of their intertwining lives. Each person's story reveals another piece of the suspenseful plot as the protests of the past inform the present and even the future. You can't stand outside this novel. It demands that readers reflect on their own lives and the intimate changes we made and are making to the swiftly moving global flow of history. Clandestine operations help us examine our personal and political interconnections, and in spite of it all, our surviving capacity for love. So welcome, Diana Block. Oh, thank you so much, Nina. That was such a beautiful blurb. When I saw it the first time, I thought, oh, she got it. She caught what I was trying to do. And uh, so I so appreciated having you write that and having it be in the front of the book. Well, and I'm not the only writer to have appreciated what you wrote. You also have blurbs from the historian Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz, author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States and one of my personal favorites, and Margaret Randall, author of Sandino's Daughters and Che on My Mind, both writers who are concerned with feminist issues and 
world political issues. And that's what your book is about. Tell us a little about how you came to write it. Yes. As you know, but your listeners might not, I wrote a memoir a number of years ago, which was about my history as a radical social justice activist and a feminist, and my years that I spent living underground, and that was called Arm the Spirit. And after I finished writing the memoir, I realized that there were a lot of stories that I just couldn't tell in the framework of a memoir, primarily because they had confidential private aspects, and I really was very careful that I didn't want to violate people's confidentiality. So when I came to that point, I thought, well, I want to be able to tell these stories. I want to be able to tell them, but in a way that isn't limited by the kind of restrictions that nonfiction imposes. And that's when I started thinking about a novel. I have written short stories in the past. When I was younger, I probably dreamt that someday I would write a novel, but I put that aside for many years when I kind of focused my life on social justice work. But here now, as I am getting older, and it was the point of my life when I actually had the ability to put some time aside and do what I had dreamt of doing for many years and write this novel. And it was wonderful. It was a wonderful, liberating experience. How long did this take you? Well, altogether, it probably took a little over four years, but, you know, I am still very active. I do a lot of work with women and transgender prisoners. I have a full-time job. So I really worked the writing into my weekend hours and other times when I could squeeze it in. It didn't feel that long, interestingly enough. It felt like the words and the stories really flowed in some ways more easily than with my memoir, where I had to really make sure that I was reflecting the history that was a collective history accurately. Here, I still wanted to reflect certain truths and make them seem real, but I didn't have to worry as much about it being exactly correct. You had the freedom of fiction. Exactly, and it really was freeing in many ways. Well, in this book, you take the lives of six different women and how they affect one another and how they affect generations. I wonder if you could introduce us and read us about at least one of these women. Yeah, certainly. So if not two or three. <laughs> okay, well, a couple. There are, as you said, six different women, and they span a long time, and they enter the story at different points. I'm going to choose this first woman, not because she's the most central character, but in some ways because maybe she's not the most central. It's easier to extract her story and begin talking about it from the beginning point of her journey, which she enters the story in 2007. And her name is Maggie. And the title of this chapter is Camouflage. And I can talk a little bit about that after after I read this. If he hadn't stumbled carelessly against me as I was rushing to cross the street, I might never have noticed him. I was late for my shift on the ortho ward and already irritated that Gordon had been too busy skateboarding to let me know he wouldn't be home after school. 
So when I felt the man's body weight slump onto mine, I almost shoved him rudely away before I saw his day-glow orange uniform and the chains shackling his feet. If I had pushed him, he would have crumbled downward, helpless, on the pavement below. Sorry, miss, Clay here seems to have lost his balance. The man in the crisply ironed olive green uniform and buff black shoes was tugging on Clay in a clumsy, misplaced effort to get him upright on his feet. Clay was staggering, trying to stabilize himself, but I could tell immediately from his labored breathing and the sweat rolling down the dark wrinkles of his face that the stumble was caused by more than his chains. I think he needs to sit down, not stand up, I said, and began to help Clay settle himself on the curb of the sidewalk. When the guard seemed to hesitate about following the instructions of a small, non-uniformed woman regarding his prisoner, I added in my most commanding voice, I'm a nurse, and flashed my ID badge at him. This man may be having a heart attack, and we need to call the ER across the street to come and get him. That seemed to shake Mr. Olive Green up a little. I wasn't sure about the heart attack, but I imagined that this burly guard wouldn't want to explain a death on his watch. Okay, I guess. He has an appointment with some other department. He fumbled for a paper in his pocket. Maybe my partner has the paper. He, he went to get some food at the cafeteria, which is why I'm here by myself. We usually escort the inmates in teams, you know. He was explaining this to me as if I were the supervisor he might have to justify things to back at the jail. Neurology. Clay's breathing had calmed down enough for him to talk. His voice was gravelly but surprisingly deliberate. I have an appointment with a neurology specialist because I've been having trouble with my balance lately. Abruptly, I realized that I hadn't talked directly to the man himself before he spoke. He was an orange-suited inmate, and I had chosen to communicate with the commander in Olive Green instead. I appreciated that Clay wanted to take authority over his own condition. Thank you. Can you tell me what has been happening lately? I didn't want to do an intake interview, but now that I had heard his voice, I needed to know what he had to say. Despite his distress, Clay quickly described his history of severe headaches, visual impairment, nausea, and increasing frequent falls that had been ignored for more than two years. He left the accusation of malpractice unstated. I was drawing my own conclusions when the ER team arrived. Thank you, Miss Rafferty, Maggie Rafferty. Only when Clay grabbed my hand to say goodbye could I feel the clawing panic beneath his sharp clinical observations. I will check on you later, Clay, I told him as the guard was pulling him away. I work in orthopedics, but I'll try and come down and see how you're doing later on. So that's the beginning. Of, wow. this, of this little episode, and it's a story that actually grew out of a lot of my current experience working in a hospital and seeing an increasing number of prisoners in orange day-glow uniforms being brought in, shackled over the years, and being just profoundly disturbed as to what that meant and the fact that almost nobody ever paid attention to it at all when, as I walked down the corridors 
People would essentially look away or look up or look down or look around, but nobody would look at the prisoner themselves and certainly not at their chains. And well, in this story, we get a good look at that prisoner. And is he pivotal in the story? This prisoner isn't, but prisoners in general are. I mean, the novel itself has a lot of focus on what is being commonly called now mass incarceration and the ways in which mass incarceration permeates our everyday lives at this point. And actually, you know, four and a half years ago when I started writing it, I really wanted to make that point. And as I wrote it, it seems like the kind of public awareness has at least a little bit caught up with the theme of some of the stories. Because now people do, you know, they hear the term mass incarceration and Barack Obama is talking about it. And so in a certain way, I feel like it's very timely in trying to express some of these things. And it's it probably is something more people can identify with now that the terms have become more popular. So what other character can you introduce us to? The story has a lot of complications, a lot of complicated interweavings among the different women and the different generations. One of the women in the book is someone who has been disillusioned about political activity. She was, in many ways, she's a, of the 70s, 60s, and 70s generation, and she was not treated very well by her movement colleagues. And this is a phenomenon that, of course, many of us who have lived for a while and have lived through different eras of the movement have, you know, observed, participated in. And I really really wanted to talk about that from a both sympathetic point of view, but also from the point of view of what happens to people who get burnt out and cynical and yet have this piece of them that is really still outraged by what's going on and yet have no way of expressing it. Anyway, that woman, Sage, has a daughter and her name is Annis. And the daughter reacts to her mother's cynicism and disillusion. And the way she reacts is by wanting to get to know some of the heroes of the, of the past, some of the icons, some of the people who are political prisoners. And one of the people that Annis wants to explore, investigate, is living in a prison right near San Francisco. And so this young woman, Annis decides to go and visit the political prisoner whose name is Cassandra and do her senior thesis on Cassandra. And that's sort of the setup of how that relationship begins. And so I can read a little bit of the beginning of that chapter. When is the year of this event? This one begins in 2010. So we're moving forward. We're not quite into the future yet. And it's called Release. And it's the person speaking is this young woman, Annis. Your limp was the first thing I noticed about you, Cassandra, as you walked into the visiting room. You limped deliberately toward me, angling your body ever so carefully through the narrow spaces between the tables overloaded with chips, candy bars, and soda. I guess I had expected you, a white woman who had once escaped from prison, to be one of those take-charge striders, like the towering Drucker woman on the poster on my mother's bedroom wall, tramping fearlessly across the city, 
hair flowing, arms and legs swinging wide, overshadowing the skyscrapers in the background, stomping through everything in her way. But you stepped cautiously, as if one false move could cause a mass chain reaction spill, a dangerous cascade of junk food, overturning one table and then the next, until all the grease and sugar landed smack, splattering at the feet of the two imperial guards sitting in command at the front of the room. When you finally got to where I was sitting on the way back, as far away from them as I could get, you said my name Annis and got it right the first time, unlike most people who make it rhyme with peace or release. Then you extended your hand in an assured, graceful motion that made me think that you had probably once walked with that same elegance. You look like your pictures, I said, even though I was thinking how faded you seemed compared to the glamorous woman in the books and magazines I had unearthed at the San Francisco State Library, even in the posed pictures taken in prison, you had looked fashionable. Your hair was cropped close and sharp around your high cheekbones, your hoop earrings dangled beneath your sunglasses, and your shirt and jeans fit just right. You could have been out on the street rather than posing behind bars. But here, in person, you looked like an inmate, dressed like every other woman in the room, with a loose tan shirt hanging shapeless over beige pants. Your hair hung listless down the sides of your head, hiding its striking shape. I wondered whether you were able to get conditioner in prison and how often you could take a shower, or if you could buy the kind of lotion that could heal the cobweb cracks under your eyes. Not the kind of questions I had come here to ask you, but the pad with the ones I had written down to start this interview were locked in a steel case in the visitor processing room, along with my forbidden pen. You just heard Diana Block reading from her new book, Clandestine Occupations, An Imaginary History. So, Diana, where can people get this exciting book? Well, the best place that for sure is through my publisher, PM Press, and they are, as many people may know, local, a wonderful radical press right here in the Bay Area. And if you go online and to go to pmpress.org, they will get you a copy very quickly. They are very good about mailing out copies. They are also available at various bookstores, but, you know, due to the people buying them, and I, I don't know which bookstore to recommend the most. So I think PM Press is the most reliable way, and supporting independent publishers is also a great thing to do. Well, thank you so much. This is a really beautifully written book that I enjoyed immensely, and especially because it speaks to the interconnectedness uh -huh. of people, how our lives really affect one another, and they do so for generations. So right. it's really interesting that you allowed your book to flow into the future, because that's where all the possibilities lie. Exactly. So exactly. thank you so, so much. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for having me and appreciating it in the poetic voice that you bring to all the work that you do.
This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles, and I have in the studio Pablo Armando Fernandez, direct from Havana, Cuba. Pablo is one of the most respected and well-known Cuban poets, both at home and in the world. He's won many prizes, published many books, essays, and plays. Bienvenidos, Pablo, to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you. I'm very happy here. I'm so glad, and so glad that you've brought your poetry to share with us. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you become a poet? How did you start writing? Well, I started writing as a child. I was then probably 10 or 12 years old. I heard the first chapter of a soap opera based on Wuthering Heights, and Emily Bronte stole my soul and my mind, but I read it before it ended, and something happened to me. I heard a voice. Probably was not something that really I imagined. Probably I heard a conversation about the novel, but I heard somebody telling me, why do you pay so much attention to that decadent bourgeoisie. And don't think of us, look at us. We are here, lonesome, abandoned, suffering. We lack a voice, we lack a face. Please, think of us. And I started writing something called gestures. Was a way of getting closer to that human being. I wrote them in English. In 1945, I was 15 years old. Two weeks later, I became 16th in New York. And I kept the school because as I was a writer, I wanted to be a writer in English. It was not me. It was that voice who always told me what to write. And I met Carson McKellers. And Carson was very generous to me. And when I told her that I was a writer, she told me, I would like to read those gestures, you call them. And Carson said that was poetry. I talked with her a lot about poetry. My eldest brother was a poet, and I've heard him and his friends reading poetry in my childhood, and I have read poetry also, but I was not a poet. When I left, Carson did something very fabulous. Took a pencil and divided the lines I had written and read them to me. And I said, well, that's your poetry, not mine. When I left her, I was crying. And a friend of mine that was waiting for me said, what's wrong with you? I said, well, you know, she said, I'm a poet. She said, of course, you're a poet. What do you think you are? Manila Harman have told you all the time, and me, that... You are a poet. You don't trust us. I hope you trust her. She's a great writer, as you know. And I wrote a poem. And I wrote that poem in Spanish, not in English. And that changed my whole life completely. But as I was a writer, I kept thinking that I have to write prose. And I wrote, I have published three novels, a book of short stories, a book of essay. The play that I wrote and was produced in New York in 1958 is a poem, a dramatic poem. But I now I accept that I am a poet. 
as does the whole world, except that you are an amazing poet. You were born in Delicias, a, a sugar mill town, in what year? 1929. What was that like? Well, Delicias was like a small southern town. Some of the homes there, I saw them in Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois. They have a school. They taught us English in the morning and Spanish in the afternoon. That's why I could have listened to that voice that talked to me in English. It was a nice place with all the problems of places. It was divided by sections. And one neighborhood where Americans lived when it was found, that sugar mill town, was for the so-called whites. Another neighborhood, they accepted what they used to call colored people then. But there were people who came from the other islands, from the West Indies, and they were not accepted by these colored people. There were four clubs, one for the Americans, one for the so-called whites, and the others, colored people. And the people that came from the other islands were very, I love them, very intelligent. And they didn't get hurt at all. They decided they have to have their own place to be together, to listen to music and so on. And they built a small place and they called West Indies Progressive Association. And I said, that is my people, the progressive ones. I came to New York and I found that there was a place for colored people called Harlem. The Chinese in Cuba, there were, in my hometown, there were also Chinese, also aside, a place called Chinatown. Little Italy was a village. The Jewish were living in the west side, Riverside Drive, Western Avenue. There were the Germans were in the east side. And the Latin Americans in those days, in 1945, when I got here, we were, the Latin American population was Cuban. The Puerto Rican came later on, came in 1947 on. Dominicans, there were very few. Now, there are probably a million now, but there were very few. Argentinians, Colombians, few families also. But we were oh, a few thousands of Cubans. And then in 1959, when the Cuban Revolution triumphed, you returned to Cuba. Yes, I did. What have some of the changes of the revolution made in your life and in the life of your family? Well, darling, I believe that changes have to be natural as life. One is more as a baby. One grows, and we are called a child. And then we grow more and we are adolescents. And one day we call ourselves young adults and we keep going on and we turn to be mature, third generation, or how you call them, third, what is it called, third generation. I'm fourth generation, I'm 80 years old, so I'm ancient. And that has to be, shouldn't be imposed. They have to respond to love, to human beings, to humanity. Marti, Jose Marti, our prophet, apostle, taught us that native land is humanity. So I accepted those changes, knowing that there is envy, jealousy, competition, resentment, and a false way of acting, thinking, and feeling. And one has to go through that also, because you cannot avoid that other people would feel that against you. And that happens to every human being on earth. It doesn't matter because people are divided by races, economy, politics, 
religion and everything else. We separated ourselves constantly. As, as I knew that when things went wrong against me, I didn't have to suffer. I learned that doubt and fear are sufferings that afflict adults, not children. And that, that I learned also. I said, well, remain strong, faithful to yourself, to your feelings. And the revolution gave me myself. I was back where I was born. And there was the landscape, the history, and culture waiting for my return. And from then, I have written all these novels, short stories, poetry, and so on. Thank you so much, Pablo Armando Fernandez, international poet from Havana, Cuba. just listening to the music of the group Haracol. They are in studio with us here at La Raza Chronicles tonight. 
and they're here to share with us their music and some of the community projects they're working on. Gracias por estar con nosotros. Hola, 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 hola. ¿Cómo están todos? Gracias por tenernos. Why don't we have you all introduce yourselves first? Hey, what's up? My name's Yesenia Molina. I'm here from Watsonville, California, and it's good to be here. Hola, soy Felipe, este representando San Francisco y todo California. Saludos, mi nombre es Cristal Olivas, and I'm coming from San Jose, California. Well, I know you guys got together through some community work. Yesenia, why don't you tell us the story behind that? All right, yeah, so we all met in Santa Cruz, California about, uh, I want to say like three to four years ago now, and... At the time, me and Crystal lived in a house together called the Huerta Fitch House in Santa Cruz. And it was like a collective of us that were living together, doing some good good work and good stuff in the community. And I, about a year prior to that, I had gone to Veracruz for the first time on my own to Mexico with a friend. And I was taken to a house where there was a group of people that lived together that played Son Jarocho. I met all of these amazing people and was embraced into this culture and I ended up buying and purchasing my first harana and from then on I've been learning ever since and so I brought that harana back to the United States with me and later on Crystal had moved into the house and she was she knew she played the guitar and she was interested in learning the harana so I was like hey we have a ukulele it's tuned the same you know we should start practicing because there's no one else here that, play, that that I knew that played other than one other person. And so little by little, she started picking up the, the ukulele at the time, and she got a hang of it, like, really quickly because she already had played the guitar. And so we started jamming out, like, almost every day, practicing mm-hmm. little little pieces here and there, and sort of evolved from there. Yeah. So during this time when Yesenia was showing me what she knew, it, it got to a point where it was like she kind of helped me get to like where she was at and then it was like all right we got to look for like resources and because we didn't know any other jaraneros in santa cruz at the time and then um we ended up meeting our friend stivy who plays harana shout outs to stivy burns in santa cruz um lupulo yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and we started getting together with him uh weekly and he would show us what what he knew sometimes we would skype the homies in veracruz um from colectivo altepe and they would show us stuff um and then i think like after a couple of months of of doing that some friends hit us up and told us that they um had just purchased haranas and um they were living in Santa Cruz at the time. So then we, we started getting together more often and showing them what we knew. And so it, it like, became this, like, big – well, no, not that big. But, like, <laughs> yeah, it, it was pretty small. But I guess it, it just it felt big in the sense that we were, like, trying to reach out to all the resources that we had. And, like, and then we would come together and show each other what we knew. So um, – and that was, like, the beginning of – Colectivo Jaracol, and um, so it just started evolving from there. And we would, when whenever we would like get together to play, we would also invite other people that wanted to learn or wanted to like wanted to learn how to play or wanted to sing or wanted to learn dance steps. And we would just and always let people know that like we weren't necessarily like uh. Just let them know about where we were at in our learning process. Which was in no way professional <laughs> or yeah, like... But, yeah, but I think there's like a lot of strengths in, in being able to um, 
to like be vulnerable with what you know and teach somebody what you know and then also be like okay like you know we don't know everything but we're all down to learn together and I feel like that's really important and it's like taught me a lot and just in terms of like how to hold like community spaces I feel like that's it kind of transcends Haracol and, and it like it definitely like informs all the other things that I do in term in terms of like organizing with people. And and I think that a lot of that also came from when me and Crystal had the opportunity to travel together to mm-hmm. Veracruz and we stayed there for about a month in Acayucan with the collective Sonotepe. And I think we both experienced uh just this really great loving community that, you know, really tried to teach each other everything they knew and shared everything, you know, when someone was thirsty to go get water, you'd come back and be like, Do you guys want water? You know, and, and, and offered to everyone who was there because that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. You know, when we made meals, everyone pitched in and everyone helped cook and everyone ate. And then at the end, you know, everyone washed dishes. So it was just really good. And I think that influenced our, our little group in a, in a big way. Yeah. Like when we get together, we all try to, you know, bring something to eat, to break bread together. I think that means a lot mm-hmm. to us. You know, um, the ideas were, like, for example, our name, Haracol. Originally, we were going to be Haranyas <laughs> because we were, you know, we we're trying to think of a good name that came up with the concept of like, you know, networking. We're all working together. We're all connected, you know, as humans. And then so Haracol came out because I'm like, OK, it's a circle, you know, no one, no hierarchy. We're on the same level. We're all teaching each other. You know, no one is, is better than the other. Um, we all have different skills. You know, mm-hmm. some of us dance, some of us sing, some of us play, some of us do it all, you know. So so I think that's something that I really liked yeah. about our group. And it's pretty amazing. The folks that I know that play Sona Harochon who've gone to Veracruz have expressed kind of similar experiences, being kind of embraced fully by a community and just having an amazing time there. And it's pretty amazing how the Bay Area has embraced Son Jarocho, when you think of Mexican culture and music, there's such a, a range and diversity. But the Bay Area is really blessed to have folks like you and, and other people and also bringing folks from Veracruz to really enjoy this music. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Este, was the way that I actually came into the group is uh, I was working with an organization down in Santa Cruz, uh, Barrios Unidos, and shout outs to all the family in Barrios Unidos. Um, at the time, uh, we were working at uh, within the uh, prison systems and and juvenile halls and county jails, and um, we were doing events in prisons. And um, we got together to do an event at Trace at Vacaville. I'm sorry, Vacaville Prison at the time. And uh, this is a hospice prison, so the majority of the inmates are uh, are either in deathbeds or very uh, critical. And so we we got invited to go into the hospice area and to perform for the folks that were very uh, that we won't be seeing next year. You know, we go every year and and visit the family inside. And so um, we got together. I have uh, as Barrios Unidos, we invited uh, Crystal and, and uh, Yesenia to come in and perform. And so um, in this afternoon, they invited me to join and uh, play with them. And so um, that's how I kind of came together with the group, uh, with the organizing work. And uh, I continued playing. And here I am. Yeah. And since then, we've gone in there twice now and played. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, the men really enjoyed it. You know, we're constantly... Uh, getting told how much they loved it and seeing, you know, the girl dancing on the box. <laughs> and and it was just really good to hear all that, you know, and get some good good feedback from them and, and that we were able to bring a little bit of life, a little bit of happiness in there, you know. You could really feel um, the energy. When when we were in there, it was just, just really great, you know. And, and one of them, actually, the gentleman that we saw 
in the hospice area the next year when we went back he was out and he looked very you know as good as he can be in there you know and and I like to think that our music did a little bit of something you know a little bit of magic um and then we've also taken people from Veracruz no from uh Santa Ana in Anaheim near Anaheim and into the juvenile hall and that also was a great great experience and and the boys um, the young folks in there, they just really loved it and enjoyed it, and they were super happy, man. I can't mm-hmm. even tell you how, how great it was to see their smiles on their face and, and their heads moving, you know, to the beat, because they weren't only playing song, like, they had an opportunity to be like, play some Bob Marley, and then they they were busting out Bob Marley, mm-hmm. or just different songs that they liked, you know, that the guys knew, or and so it was just really great, and I think that's yeah. definitely needed. This is a great, great uh, music because it's very simple to play and understand. And so it's been, for me, it's been difficult to find something, an outlet and stuff. And so when I got introduced to this music, it really taught me how to, you know, let let myself go and stuff. So it's been great to uh, to understand this, this type of style of music. Yeah. Um, I think it's also, like, really important to remember that, que, like, música de cuerda tradicional is, like... Es música de campo, and it's about, it's very much about, like, being in tune with, like, the land, and it's also um, just, like, music of, like, of the people. And so, um, kind of like what Yesenia was talking about earlier, about, like, having this feeling of, like, collectivity that comes through the music, like, I feel like the, the music is a small part of, of, like, a bigger, yeah, a bigger sense of community, and um and like people get together because of the music and like make these huge things happen where everybody plays like an essential role and everyone comes together and so to be able to to take it into like the juvenile halls and the prisons is i feel like an extension of that um like never forgetting that like we have like brothers and sisters that are locked up right now and and being able to to share like um a little bit of like this tradition. yeah and and that it, it is about like it is about our people and it is about people and coming together to support each other it's pretty amazing how music can really play a healing role in our communities and it's wonderful that you all are out there doing that work why don't you share another song with us all righty <laughs>
beautiful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, thank you. It's hard not to feel happy when you listen to Son Jarocho. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Especially in a heavy day. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I know all of you um, are wonderful musicians, but um, you're also very involved in your communities. Why don't you tell us about some of the community projects you're involved in right now? So I, like I said earlier, I'm from San Jose, and that's where I'm living right now. And there's actually quite a few projects that I'm involved with in at the moment. Um, I live in a house of all women. Um, there are three other friends of mine. Um, we are Casa Chiquimalas, and we um, we have started a collective within the house um, and have opened up our home as like a community art and music space. So last June, we started an art gallery series that we call Ojos Que Si Ven. Um, and in the moment, we're in the planning process of our third um, art gallery of the series. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a page, Casa Chiquimalas, and we post um, we post our events there. So we we got together um, when we were living together and decided that we wanted to extend our home as a community space because there is there's a pretty big lack of like all ages spaces in San Jose, and um, we wanted to to use our our home as like a platform to encourage ourselves and our friends to pursue their art and to like expose themselves. And in the process, we've made a lot of connections and have met a lot of artists that have exhibited their work at the house. We've also met other art collectives that are kind of trying to do the same thing. And so I kind of see, um, I see like different groups kind of in San Jose coming together right now. Cool. And yeah. then um, I have two little things to shout out, I guess. Um, I am originally from Watsonville, as I said, and currently going to school at San Francisco State. Um, but once a brown beret, always a brown beret. So I was just going to shout out, uh, if anyone's interested, we have our meetings every Friday at the Watsonville Bike Shack, 555 Main Street, Watsonville, behind Bank of America. Um, and the meetings are from 7 to 9. And so you should definitely come check it out. There's a lot of good things happening, good community members, uh, young folks that are taking action in their community, and that's always important, you know, and we should always support whenever that is happening. And for those people who don't know who the Brown Berets are, tell us a little bit about them. All right, yeah. Um, so the Brown Berets originally started in the 60s in East L.A., but the Brown Berets, the Watsonville Brown Berets chapter, autonomous chapter, started in 1994. They actually started because of a lot of violence specifically because of two murders that happened in the community, but in general, just a lot of violence that was happening in the community that they, you know, were tired of and inspired from young lords, you know, the Black Panthers. They said, ya basta, you know, and they were tired of, of this, uh, all the stuff that was bad stuff that was happening in their community. So they got together, a group of young folks, and started organizing um, peace marches, um, peace and unity marches that happen every year to protest gang domestic violence. And in general, it's kind of like a Chicano studies class. You know, we devote 30 minutes to every uh, every meeting where we have a, a each one teach one uh, segment, you know, um, where someone in the community or a Brown Beret member can come in and uh, teach us something. You know, we believe that everyone has something to teach and everyone has something to learn. So I think that's something that has uh, changed my life forever. And, and so, yeah, I'll definitely always support it and promote it whenever I can. Um, and then the second thing is me and Crystal have... Uh, a uh, little little business on the side and right now I've been taking the lead on that and it's called Tlacan Arte and you can check us out on Etsy it's Tlacan Arte 
T-L-A-K-A-N-A-R-T-E, tlacanarte.etsy.com. And we have some earrings there, some shoes. Y currently, ahorita estoy en la misión, este, trabajando ahí en la misión con, uh, pues, con muchos proyectos, ¿verdad? Este, estoy ahorita trabajando con Instituto Familiar de la Raza, Carecen, uh, shouts out to all those folks because uh, they're doing some very hard work and it's been difficult. Uh, San Francisco is going through a lot of changes with new residents and uh, and so uh, it, it's uh, it's been uh, going very well and, and uh, but we're still having a lot of issues with a lot of youngsters coming from different from uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and so the work that I'm doing right now is with youngsters that are on the streets, uh, trying to um, help them out with services or housing. And, you know, housing right now in San Francisco is a big issue. And so it's been uh, difficult to find housing, difficult to find the uh, access to housing. And also trying to uh, connect folks that are coming back home from either prison, jail, or uh, juvenile hall. Um, the work that we do is, is uh, just try to get the youngsters into uh, services so they won't hit the streets and they won't continue doing what they're doing. Um, but the, I always get involved. I, I'm also running around with Crystal and Yesenia up and down the coast, uh, going to Watsonville and, and uh, San Jose. But it, the good thing about this music, it, it takes us everywhere, and we're able to kind of see what's going on in other communities and, and come back to my community and see, oh, well, you know, we're going through similar issues. And so this music has really taken us very far, and hopefully it'll continue taking taking us far. And that's actually one thing that I really wanted to emphasize, um, that, that, you know, I think it's more of a lifestyle than, like, just a group, you know, also. And, and although we might not meet every week or or every two weeks, or even every month, you know, in the long run, we'll always meet up again because we are just homies and we want to see each other, you know, and hang out with each other, but also play music, yeah. you know, and keep this these traditions alive. Um, because in the United States, I feel like most of the time, our culture as Mexicanos is, is being put down, you know, oppressed and, and kind of like trying to be erased. So it's definitely important to um, try to do anything you can to keep it alive. Nosotros tenemos mucho tiempo ya, ya desconectados de nuestro país, so this is a good way of getting in touch again. Well, can you all play another song for us? Yes, definitely. definitely.
right. <laughs> Great job. That's the music of the collective Haracol. They're in studio with us this evening. And they've been, they've been sharing their music and the wonderful projects that they're a part of. It's so great to have you here in studio and to have you be with us and share this amazing Son Jarocho music. It's been such a pleasure. If our listeners want to get more information about the group or when you're going to get together and play, where can they go to? Um, so we have some, I guess, like jam recordings uh, up on a SoundCloud and uh, you can find us, I think it's soundcloud.com slash haracol. Los haracol. Oh, yes, yeah. Soundcloud.com slash los haracol. But if anyone listening really wants to hit us up, you can um, look for Casa Chiquimalas on Facebook. And yeah, we're all homies. We all know each other. So hit us up on there. Um, and how do you spell Chiquimala? C-H-I-K-I-M-A-L-A-S. Yeah, so you can contact us through there. We don't have like a group page or anything right now. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here again. And we hope that you'll come into the studio and join us once again in the future. Definitely keep us posted on what you're up to. And we'll make sure Definitely. to post on our Facebook page and um, link to all the projects that you are connected to. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Yeah, definitely, Vanessa. Thank you. Why don't we go out with one more song? Okay, right. um, so this next song is actually a cover. It's not like un son tradicional, pero sí es una viejita pero bonita. Es mi plegaria. to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, just search for La Raza Chronicles on soundcloud.com. And of course, make sure to like us on Facebook to get regular updates on news, arts, and culture desde el mundo latino. We also love hearing from our listeners, so email us at larazachronicles.com at kpfa.org. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles.